This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. If you read the police report section of the paper, you will see the names of people who have been caught driving under the influence. Generally, they're under the influence of alcohol, sometimes under the influence of drugs. And, and I try to have compassion. I really do because, except for the grace of God, that would be me. But I'll admit that when arrests are made for those who are impaired, uh, it does please me because we have lost way too many innocent people at the hands of someone who is driving under the influence. But today, rather than address the issue of being under the influence of alcohol or drugs, I want to talk to you about being under the influence of something else, more specifically under the influence of money. And the phrase that will anchor our thoughts today is a phrase that Jesus used while telling a parable or a story about a farmer who went out to plant some seeds. And when the plant started growing, Jesus said in Matthew 13, 22, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life, and here's the phrase again that we're going to focus on, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. Now, let me set up our lesson with a, a very simple illustration. Many of you, especially those of you who have had kids in the last 30 years or so, uh, you've been to one of those pizza places, Chuck E. Cheese's uh, Incredible Pizza and and yes, they do sell pizza there, but the main attraction would be the games that kids play. And the games are designed so that if you do well, you win tickets that look like this. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Now, it's confession time in the house of the Lord. If you're like me, when I have gone there... Uh, here were some of my emotions. When my kids and, and then my grandkids played those games, because my nature, and I don't like this about myself, but I'm a very competitive person and, and very intense. And so watching my kids and watching my grandkids play those games caused me to get tied up in knots. Um, and, and especially when I saw that they weren't doing very well. They weren't getting very many of these tickets. And so here's what I tended to do. I wanted to help them do well so that we could get as many tickets as possible. Um, and so to begin with, I tried a fairly passive approach, and, and I would just try to help them over their shoulder. You know, I had some professional advice that I needed to give them. And, but, but then many times I would find myself getting caught up in the intensity of the game, and, and I ended up just kind of pushing them to one side and taking over. I mean, here was an opportunity for us to get 10 tickets for this one game, and they were playing at a level where they might get one ticket total. I needed to help them out. And so I would take that little ball, I would roll it up the ramp to try to get in that circle with 50 points for 50 points. So I would take the little bowling ball and, and roll it with much greater speed and much greater accuracy than they could have to get more pins down. And, and my favorite was to take over the pounding of the head of that poor groundhog. 
You know, some call it whack-a-mole, but these are groundhogs. Man, that was so much fun, just pounding that and, you know, do it with a lot of energy because that, that just made a difference there. And I was so driven, I couldn't stand to see my grandkids waste an opportunity to get more tickets because I grew up like you did, um, believing that we could, if we could just get enough tickets that would get a surprise that would make us happy. Well, at the end of uh, our three hours at Chuck E. Cheese's where we've spent $30 for pizza and another $50 to play games, because of the fact that I have stepped in like a world-class athlete, we count our tickets and find out that we have 694 of these tickets. And we proudly take those 694 tickets up to the counter and cash them in, and we get prize like this. <laughs> and like this. Now that's a good deal. You spend $30 for pizza, $50 for tickets, and you get this. You can't go wrong with this. And seriously, you would think that we would learn our lesson, but next time we do the same thing. You know, it doesn't take kids very long in America to develop the mentality that if we can just get enough tickets, we'll get a prize that'll make us happy. Well, when we grow up and become adults, the tickets change. And we begin to believe that if we can just get enough of these tickets, that'll make us happy. And will bring us significance and make us feel secure. But, but the problem with these tickets, just as these tickets, it's so deceitful. So deceitful. The feeling of happiness. It lasts about as long as it does for this light to go out. At my desk in, in my office behind uh, my keyboard, I have a couple of old cell phones that I keep. They're reminders of the past. I, I started out with a big bag phone for my car. Most of you are young people. You don't know what a bag phone is. You can Google it, okay? How many of you remember a bag phone? How, how many? Oh, my word. That is incredible. I, I started out with a bag phone. And uh, then I graduated to a, a candy bar phone. How many of you remember a candy bar phone? Just get a Snicker bar, it's about the size of a Snicker bar. They called it a candy bar phone. And then, then the end thing became a flip phone. I had to have a flip phone. That was just so absolutely cool. And, and then the slider phone. Anybody remember the slider phone? You, the keyboard would slide. That way you'd have a little keyboard there. Then you could slide it back in. That was it. And then I went to a first-generation smartphone. But what's so incredible is that as soon as I got the latest phone, it was already out of date. And I felt sad because I wanted the next big 
thing. Those examples right there illustrate what Satan does to us. He's a master deceiver. And, And he has that knack of being able to bring us under the influence of things and under the influence of money. He has caused our possessions to become the number one God in our lives. You know, if you read Scripture, if you study Scripture, you will find that when it comes to the matter of prayer, there are about 500 verses on prayer. That's a lot of verses on prayer. But when you study Scripture, you find out that when it comes to the matter of money and possessions, there aren't 500 verses. There are 2,000 verses. And so God understood that Money, things were going to be the number one God, a competitor in our lives. And so he said, I need to address that. And so Jesus issued a stern warning in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, says, No man can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. Hit us. You cannot serve both God and money. And have you ever wondered... Why it is that money is such an attractive false god? Well, first of all, because money promises happiness. You know, we've been programmed to think that if if I just had a little bit more in my stack, then I could buy that which would make me happy. And I don't know what would make you happy. Maybe for some of you ladies, it would be if I had a little bit more in my stack, I could buy the shoes that would match the outfit, that would match my glasses, that would match my nail polish, that would match my makeup, that would match the bracelet that I got for 50% off. And that holistic approach to my appearance would then make me happy. Or if I only had a little more in my stack, I could have a house with two bathrooms or maybe two and a half baths. Or have a newer car, or or I could have someone to help me clean my house. Or if I had more in my stack, I could get my nails done every week. That's not for you, Craig, by the way, okay? (laughs) Just for the ladies. And, And by the way, ladies, I don't know if I should say this or not, but... Just say it. Thank you. That's what I needed. Uh, Ladies, it's okay to get your nails done. You know, do that. I I don't think it's sin. Just just go to your local manicurist, support local business, get them done. But but just so you know, you don't need to get your nails done for us guys. Okay? In in my 60-some years of wild living, I've never heard one guy say to another, Dude... Did you see how beautiful her fingernails were? I've never heard it. So so I know I'm in deep weeds right now, but but ladies, go ahead, get your nails done if it makes you feel better, but we don't care. Just keep them clean, neat, and less than three inches long, okay? And we're all right with that. Sorry to have to reveal that information to you. but, But before I got in deep weeds and deep trouble here, I was trying to say that, you know, it... We feel that if we only had this, or, or if we had that, then we would be happy. You know, the second promise of money is that it brings security. You know, if I just had enough money to pay off all my debts and have an emergency fund, then I'd feel secure, but let me give us all a reality check, and all that has to happen is for someone you love to get really sick. And then you realize that money can't buy your way out of that. And you begin to realize that security does not come in what money buys, but 
only in who you are in Christ Jesus. Now, honestly, I think most of us would probably recoil a little bit and say, now, now Joe, you know, there, there are others who serve money, but I would never do that. Yeah, I may have my faults, but I'm not under the influence of money, believe you me. Well, well, well think about this. I would argue that if you bought something that you did not need with money you did not have to impress someone you did not like, you're probably under the influence of money. Or, or I would argue that if you've ever compromised your integrity or maybe cheated on your income tax returns or if you told your four-year-old at Silver Dollar City to tell them he's three, because three-year-olds get in free and four-year-olds don't. If, if, you, if we've ever done any of those things, we're probably under the influence of money. Or, or how about this? If you've ever compromised your family time by working too many hours, just so you can have a bigger stack, I would argue you're under the influence of money. It's a false God that is promising what only God can provide. And Paul, in talking to young Timothy, he was coaching him as a young pastor. He said this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Tell those who are rich in this world. Now, let me just stop here. Tell those who are rich. Who do you think he's talking to? Rich. You? Me? All of us. In fact, when people from... Developing countries, we used to call them the third world countries, but developing countries, which would be about 3 billion people, nearly half of the world's population, when they talk about rich people, this is what they say. This is so interesting. They say rich people own cars. And I don't know if you knew this, but if you own a car, a car, one car, you're in the top 3% of the wealthiest people alive. Furthermore, those three billion people would say, well, some of the rich people are so rich, they have an extra car. They have one for him and one for her. And then some of them are so rich, you're not going to believe it. They have houses for their cars. They call them garages. Now, they may not use them for garages, which, by the way, is another factor because they have so much stuff. They need the garage for storage. And those three billion people would continue describing rich people and say they're so rich, they drive over 100 miles just to go to a restaurant because they've got dippy bread and oil that they love. <laughs> and then at that restaurant, they will order three meals. The first one's called an appetizer. The second one's called a main course. The third one is called dessert. And, and then they finish and they drive two hours back home. They walk into their houses. Some of them have closets that you can actually walk into. And many of their homes have a his closet and a hers closet, and almost all of the closets are two stories, upper deck, lower deck. And again, those three billion people would say, these rich people look at all of those clothes, and they're so rich, they say, I can't find anything to wear. That's how rich we are. But I understand that most of us here today, we don't feel rich because we're in debt. It's a struggle to pay the bills. Our car is on its last mile. Our dryer has dried its last load. Our refrigerator 
is starting to act up. And the ambulance ride of six blocks to the hospital cost $2,800 is now needing to be paid, and we don't feel rich. But everyone, please, let's get that understanding here at the very beginning. Every one of us is in the top 1% to 3% of the wealthiest in the world. Got that? So it says, tell those who are rich in this world. So basically, tell you, me, not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which will soon be gone. Do you, do you know anything about money being gone? It goes fast. Some of you got your stimulus check and you gone. But their trust should be in the living God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. God's saying we're not to trust our money, but to trust in God who gives us everything we need for our enjoyment. And so we, we say, Paul, by the way, who wrote the book of Timothy? Timothy didn't write it. Paul wrote it. What are we supposed to do with our money then? Well, in 1 Timothy 6, 18 says, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and should give generously to those in need, always being ready to share with others whatever God has given them. So, so our money is supposed to be used to do good. God gives us money, yes, for our enjoyment, but also to be able to give generously and and share with those who are in need. Now, this morning, I want us to look at three common denominators with those who are under the influence of money. Um, number one, people who are under the influence or those who love or trust in their money, number one, feel they never have enough. Now, listen, don't misquote me on this, please. It's okay to want more. It's okay to better yourself. It's okay to get a bigger house. It's okay to get a new car. It's okay to work hard and try to accumulate all that you, here's the key word, reasonably can. You know, I agree with that quote, John Wesley. You know, we've, we've quoted it many times around here, but he said in the first part of the statement, we should make all the money we can. Of course, he went on to say, we're also supposed to save all the money we can and give all the money we can. But I believe that, that being a wise steward, as the Bible talks about, I, I believe part of that is make all the money that we can reasonably make because not everybody has the gift of money, making money. We all have the gift of spending money, but not everybody can make money. If you have the gift of making money, praise God and make all the money you reasonably can. But should any of us ever come to the point of loving money and being so driven to make more at the sacrifice of our family or at the sacrifice of our health or at the sacrifice of our spiritual life, then that is an indication that we have possibly crossed the line and we're under the influence of money. Solomon said this in a very interesting scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10, whoever loves money never has money enough. And if you love money... I can promise you that even if your stack grows more and more and more, you will still feel you need a little more than what you currently have. I don't remember who it was. That rich man was asked, how much more do you want? Just a little more. Just a little more. 
And again, don't misquote me and, and come up to me afterward and say, so, so George, it's wrong to try to make more money? No, if you still got that on your mind, you're not listening. I'm, but I'm talking about loving money. I'm talking about being controlled and under the influence of money. Now, some of you here, you don't feel like this applies to you because you don't feel you have very much. But, but think about this. Even for those of you that don't feel you have much, if you look back 10 years ago, many of you would have to say, well, I, I, I guess maybe I, I do have twice as much today that I had, maybe not money, but you got more toys and maybe more kids, uh, more equity in your car, more equity in your house. You, you've got twice, really. Your net worth would be twice what you had 10 years ago. And and so here's the question for you. Were you happy 10 years ago when you only had half of what you have now? And if the answer is no, you probably are not happy today. And you probably won't be happy 10 years from now when you have three times as much. That is the illusion that's in the scripture that we kicked our lesson off with, the deceitfulness of riches, deceitfulness of wealth. Well, Proverbs 18:11 also tells us, the wealth of the rich, and again, the rich, that's us. Uh, we're in the top 3% of the wealthiest people on earth. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it as an unscalable wall. And in common language, this is saying, you know, if we can just get enough tickets, if we can just get enough in our, our, our stack, then, then we can think, then we begin to think that somehow... We can buy off, we can ward off, we can avoid bad things because we've got this. That's the deceitfulness of riches. Well, let's, uh, let's move on. If it hasn't gotten personal yet, hang on. We're going to be an equal opportunity offender today. The, the second thing is that people who love and trust money and are under the influence of money... Wow, this gets so close. You got to love me, though, to make it to heaven, so. That wasn't that funny. <laughs> they they find, it, find it increasingly difficult to give big. Now, I know this, this sounds crazy, but it's been proven over and over again in studies that the wealthier people become, on average, they begin to give a smaller percentage. In fact, this was so fascinating to me. Um, do you know who gives the largest percentage on average in our country? Those who make below $12,000 a year. Those who make the least give the highest percentage. And obviously there are some exceptions. You know, we have some of those exceptions right here in this church. Um, people that have means, they, they found a secret of giving and they give, they give big. But do you know how this church building, and we built this, what, 16 years ago, so we still call it our new building, but... Um, that's the thing about Bonnie Witt. I was just thinking, you know, she was so pro that we build this building. And I was afraid she was about to come to the point of wanting another building program. That's what she was all about. And uh, 
but anyway, this, this building, and it doesn't sound like a lot for those of you that are listening on the radio or online, but in this community here, $2.2 million was, is a stretch for us. You know, we're a county that doesn't make a lot of, lot of money. Um, and, and you know, we had just a handful of donors, large donations, but the majority of the debt that was, uh, the, the way that this was paid off, that the debt was paid off, was through people like you and me, just the regular monthly donations. And it's incredible in a matter of, of nine years, and my goal was seven years, we didn't quite make it, but in nine years, uh, we were able to pay this off. It's just people being faithful to give. And thank God for those who gave larger amounts, but again, Generally, the church of Jesus Christ is supported and is kept going by just people like us that are faithful. And so, again, on average, it's been proven that the bigger the stack, the less percentage they give. And I don't know all of the reasons. I, I, I mean, I was th thinking about it this past week. Maybe one is that the more money we make, you know, we can write off a bunch of legal deductions, which is good. And it makes kind of our bottom line look like we haven't made much money. And, and by the way, that is perfectly legal. The IRS allows it. You do it. You do it. But I sometimes wonder how God feels whenever we go with that. You know, we take all of these deductions down. And, and so even though we've made a good amount of money, it looks like we've made a loss. And so, you know, we give to the Lord based on that loss, which is nothing. And, and I don't know. The IRS is okay with it. I just don't know. I've wondered. Is, is God okay with that? There, there's a saying that's stuck in my mind, and, and I, I've said this before, but give according to your income, lest God adjust your income according to your giving. I need to say that again. Give according to your income, lest God adjust your income according to your giving. You know, I, I also wonder if it's harder to give when we make more money because, you know, the perception, if we make $20,000 a year, the tithe ends up being $2,000, and dividing that over 12 months is $166 a month, which sounds doable, but let's say that we make $200,000, uh, and, and the tithe on that would be $20,000, about $1,600 a month. And Now, that sounds like a lot of money. And, and you would think that the more money we make, that the bigger our stack is, that we would be glad and we would be more generous, but it, it doesn't seem to work that way. It, it just seems like that the bigger our stack gets, the more tickets we have, we get more and more stingy in our giving, even as God blesses us more. Now, understand that Jesus is not concerned about the amount that we give. Understand that, please. Um, it's clear in Scripture that Jesus was more concerned about the percentage and the motive of the heart rather than the total amounts. And, and uh, you know, I told you back years and years ago, I went to a church, we were on vacation, we went to this mega church, and the pastor at the end of the sermon, while he was screaming, I feel like that the Lord wants every person to come here and bring a $40 praise offering and put it on the altar. And man, I tell you what, people were running up the aisles. I didn't. Because... You know, I, I, I just believe that God doesn't go with amounts. He goes with percentage. 
We read one day where a very poor widow who had practically nothing to her name went to the temple and put in an amount, what was it, like two pennies? The equivalent of, of two pennies? And, and, and Jesus, here was Jesus' reaction. Wow, that was impressive. And he went on and said, in fact, she gave more than anybody else. And some wealthy people were there that gave far more dollar-wise, and they were indignant. They said, wait a minute, Master, you're messed up in your math. We gave way more than this lady who gave a couple of pennies. And Jesus said the difference is this. She gave her all. He was looking at the sacrifice involved. And so what I believe that Jesus wants from all of us today is, is not equal amounts, but rather equal sacrifice. God's not asking us all to give the same dollar amount, but he's asking us, those with large incomes as well as those with small incomes, to give with equal sacrifice, which means to some here, it might really be a sacrifice to give $50. But for others, they could give $5,000 and never miss it from their account. Not equal giving equal sacrifice. And when you think about it, how, how could this lady with no stack at all give all she had? Here's the reason. Because she wasn't trusting in her stack. She was trusting in her Jesus. And you know, what we tend to do is so often is say, well, I'll give when, and I'll give when we get the credit card paid down. I'll give when we get the raise, or I'll give when we get the stimulus check back, and, and I'll give when, you know, we get the house paid down, or when the kids get on their own, and I'll, I'll give when, and listen, we need to give now. Why? Because we're blessed now. And, and I want our church to lead the way with generosity, and you have. Can I just brag on you without you guys getting the big head here? Uh, last year, a year that we call the COVID year, you gave generously. You, you gave over $100,000 to missions. Thank you. Thank you. We also paid off our new addition to the Family Life Center. And you're giving to the general fund that allows us to, to, to pay Jim Pertle. <laughs> it stayed strong. You didn't back off any. Keep up the good work. Keep on giving. Why? Because you're rich. I'm rich. We're rich. And the third thing... People who are under the influence of money often have money in the bank, but no peace in their heart. And I know some of you are probably thinking, Joe, I've got less than $100 in my account right now, and you, you may not have a lot of money in the bank, but take a look around your place. You've probably got plenty of stuff. And if you have a, a, you know, a house for your car, a garage, it's probably full. Um, you've probably got plenty of clothes in the closet, plenty of food in the cabinets. I do realize there are some food insecure people in this area, but thankfully the recent food programs that we have in our, our community are lessening that. But we sometimes think that the wealthy people are the, are the ones who are so materialistic. But here's what I found. I found that those who many times don't have a lot of money 
are sometimes more focused on stuff. I told you this is equal opportunity offender today. And, and sometimes people who don't have great means, they spend everything they get. You know, get tax refunds, stimulus checks, unexpected blessings from others. They buy things that they really don't need and, and they're continually dreaming and scheming just like I did for that bone, those phones, moving from the bag phone to candy bar phone, all of that. And how can I get this? How can I get that? And Solomon in, in Proverbs 15, 16 said something that's such an important principle. And it says, it is better to have little with fear for the Lord than to have great treasure with turmoil. In other words, it's better to have a little bit with a lot of God than to have a lot of stuff with just a little bit of God and stress over what you do have. I read about a man who manages wealth for some of the wealthiest people alive. I mean, uh, billionaires, and none of us would, would qualify, unless you're holding out on us. But, but what he does is to try to help wealthy people create a legacy so that their wealth can impact organizations and people for generations to come. And but someone once asked him, he's a good man, and he says, you work with people with great wealth. Is it always a blessing to have great wealth, or, or do the challenges for wealthy people sometimes outweigh the blessings? And, and he said, the challenges are greater than you could ever imagine. Well, that, that person asked him a follow-up question so powerfully. He, said, he asked him, if you could personally have the kind of wealth that these billionaires have, would you want it? And listen. Uh, he immediately said, absolutely not. Not in a million years. Never, ever, ever would I want that kind of wealth. Now, when I say that, here's what some of you are thinking. Well, I'd like to have a chance to find out for myself. You know, I'd like to have some of the problems of a billionaire. And the reason that we think that and the reason that we say that is because we really don't believe what the Bible says, that better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Because as we've already said, great wealth comes with great problems. It, it's, you know, it's harder to depend on God. It, it can distract you from true priorities. And that's why the Bible says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. And and again, please, this does not mean that all rich people are bad and stingy and live in turmoil and with stress. There are some people of great means. They pillow their heads at night and they have no stress because their eyes are on Jesus. And even some here in this church, even though God has blessed them with great means, great means their eyes are still on Jesus. Now let's, uh, let, let's try to make an application point here before we go home. Again, as I look around, unless you're holding out on us, um, probably nobody here is a billionaire yet. Um, but most of us, most all of us, we're probably making more money than our parents ever made at this stage. Yet, here is the thing, we're still financially strapped. Have you ever thought about that? We're making more money than ever before, but we don't ever seem to get ahead. And, and there are different reasons. I know it costs so much to live these days, and I, I know in this part of the world, it's hard to make a living. 
And then you've got all different types of insurance you've got to carry. You got, then you've got property taxes. You've got to pay your water, gas, electricity, trash bills, car payments, house payments. They roll around every month. It's tough to make a living. I understand that. I'm not being calloused as I say this. But, but I also wonder if one of the reasons, the biggest reasons we're always strapped financially is because we're consuming most everything that, that God gives us. You know, we, we make a dollar, we spend a dollar. We make a thousand dollars, we spend a thousand dollars. We get our stimulus check, we spend it. But, but here's what's so amazing. If you could just hear me out, we're almost finished. There are some people around and, and some people in this church that make a third of what we make. They're not strapped financially. And, and they look at others of us that make a lot more money and, and they can't figure out why we're so troubled financially. Here's what they've come to realize, that it's better to live on less and not buy into the deceitfulness of riches. And they've learned they don't always have to have the latest of everything. They don't have to have the latest gadgets. They don't have to eat out every day. They don't have to buy a soft drink every day. And they realize they don't have to have the best wheels or the best furniture. They've come to realize that smoking and drinking is expensive, not to mention harmful to the health. They don't have to keep up with everyone else. They've learned that their commitment is not found in, in, in more tickets. It's not found in more money or more things. Their contentment is found in Jesus. And really, more money will not keep your kids off of drugs. More money will not make your marriage better. In fact, if you don't love each other when you don't have any money, you're going to fight about money when you do have it. More money is not going to cure the person you love of cancer. More Jesus is what we need. More Jesus brings intimacy. It brings purpose, fulfillment, eternal life. You see, money is neutral. Money's not good, it's not bad. But money does make a bad God. So, so we don't serve money we serve God, and money needs to serve us as we serve God. And please, please, please don't walk around with a bunch of money in the bank or a bunch of deeds to properties you own or a bunch of grown-up toys you have that you use to have fun. Don't have all of those things but no peace in your heart. Money without God's peace will only bring frustration and stress. But money with God's peace allows us to be rich in good deeds and allows us to share and bless others. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.